America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean has partnered with the National Park Foundation to help you find your happy place. And with more than 400 national parks, there's a good chance you'll find one close to home. Discover your perfect day in a park at findyourpark.com. The national park designation has become one of the most prestigious terms in the English language. National parks have stirred the imagination of Americans ever since they were dreamed up. And a recent focus has been sparked by the confluence of social media sharing like YouTube and Instagram, the Park Service's recent 100th anniversary, and incredible documentaries like Ken Burns' America's Best Idea. But the structure of the national park system remains a mystery to many casual visitors. Some of it's even confusing to the national park expert. What exactly makes a national park? This popularity combined with politics and the promise of tourism dollars has driven government officials to leverage the park system to fit their agendas in recent years. It's time to step back, take a look at the whole picture and take stock of what we have and what we haven't. I'm Jason Epperson, and on today's episode of America's National Parks, I thought we'd take a look at the park system, how it's actually structured and show why our focuses are often severely misdirected. Who are the parks for? And how do we decide what a park is? There are 419 units in the national park system, and only 62 of them have the congressional designation of national park, including the most recent, White Sands National Park. White Sands was formerly a national monument, as many national parks were at one time. National monuments are places declared reserved for the public by the President of the United States. Most are managed by the Park Service, but not all. National parks, however, must be named by Congress. In addition to monuments national parks, we have national battlefields, national battlefield parks, national battlefield sites, national military parks, national historical parks, national historic sites, international historic sites, national lakeshores, national memorials, national parkways, national preserves, national reserves, national recreation areas, national rivers, national wild and scenic rivers and riverways, national scenic trails, and national seashores. So it's a bit of a mess. And though the Park Service has guidelines for nomenclature, Congress can essentially call something whatever it wants. In the end, the National Park Service calls them all national parks. They're all managed under the exact same parameters, and there's no special funding or any other benefit to having the Congressional National Park designation. That surprises a lot of people. In the last few years, three new congressionally designated national parks have joined the fray. White Sands, along with Indiana Dunes National Park and Gateway Arch National Park. All three were already National Park Service units, and quite literally, the only change for their operation 
was removing and replacing signage, badges, brochures, and the like. Now, here's the problem. For all three of these parks, local members of Congress lobbied hard for the name change, openly touting the increased tourism it would bring. And they weren't wrong. Indiana Dunes is probably the best example, with visitation increasing 21% in the year after the new national park status. But why? Are we so addle-minded as Americans that we don't accept the beauty and splendor of a place without a name change? Do we really skip all these other wonderful places because they don't have national park in the title? Unfortunately, for a lot of people, the name really is the thing. Which I suppose is why there was a lot of anger when Gateway Arch National Park was announced. Gateway Arch was formerly the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, and it consists of the arch, of course, and the old courthouse where the landmark Dred Scott case was tried, and a museum representing the location on the St. Louis Riverfront as the ceremonial beginning of the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail. Some thought naming it for the arch diminished the importance of the courthouse. Others thought it too small. Most, frankly, just think that a national park is a large, beautiful, open expanse of nature, and Gateway Arch just didn't fit the bill. I think we're missing the bigger picture. On the importance of urban parks such as this, here's retired ranger Ed Rosado in an oral history interview with the Association of National Park Rangers. Ed was a ranger for seven years at Gateway National Recreation Area in New Jersey and New York, not to be confused with Gateway Arch. So I was moving 28 crates of references and books that I'd accumulated in files of my own from there to my next job. And I'm doing this at like 10 o'clock at night, and this fellow comes through and said, gee, what are you doing? So I'm packing for my next job. So where are you going? So I'm going to Gateway. And he says, oh, I used to work at Gateway. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. So we talked about it a little bit. He says, you know, there's the right way, the wrong way, and there's the gateway. And I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you'll find out. And gateway was a unique experience. It was trying to do park service stuff for people in a big urban area who were never going to see the park service any other way. I mean, there's people in New York who never leave the city, who never drive. And Sometime in that experience, I was at lunch with a guy named Bob Barbie, and I said, well, you've got this great job, what a terrific job, I'd love to have your job. He said, you know, you're really doing a more important job in some ways, because, and I learned this when I was at Yellowstone, I don't know if it's still true, the average visitor to Yellowstone had to travel more than 800 miles to get there, which meant lots and lots of people were never going to get there, it was too far and too expensive. And so they weren't going to see the you know, the, the Mother Park or the premier sites we all know about. And his point was, they had to see the green grain in New York City. Because then, when their congressman came home for town hall meeting and said, do we need more jails, do we need more highways, do we need to build a sewer plant, somebody might put up their hand and go, the Park Service has taught my eighth grader environmental science. The only time we've camped out was a gateway. In a small way, they would see the park service there. We went through a big development program there. We renovated the marina. We built new bathhouses. We built new concessions, um, uh, a horse stable for the park police. They loved us. It was a, 
Um, we had a mounted horse patrol. We did a lot of concerts and activities there. So we, we had our fun there. We, we, we hopefully exposed people to the park service. And again, this was people who have never had a chance to go. You know, they, they haven't been to Rocky Mountain yet. They haven't been to the Two Ocean Plateau in Yellowstone. They haven't been to the Kings Canyon. They're, they're, they're still getting those values and exposure. So there is the gateway, but it's not a bad way. We need to educate as many people as we can about the lessons the Park Service holds, the resources you know we hold in trust for them, the lessons will be there to teach their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I think the Park Service has a vital role, and I think the urban parks are included in that, because they're going to reach lots and lots of people who are never going to get to the other places. And then when you look at how the balance is in Congress, we need people valuing us, understanding us, supporting us from every place. They can't be just rich white kids who went to prep school and had the summer to travel out west. It's got to be kids from the city and kids from poor families. Most of the urban parks don't have entry fees. But if you're having a hard time with food and you're living off McDonald's and a park is $20 there to get into, then you wouldn't go. But you can go to Gateway, and you can remember that they took you in at night when it was too hot and uncomfortable to go home. Reese Park is a big ocean beach that the Park Service runs down there. When it was very hot, a lot of people would come down out of what we, we would call tenements. The upper part of the city had old, old, nasty housing that typically didn't have any air conditioning. And you're living in little boxes, and they'd come down to the park um, for, for the day, you know, normally closing at sunset, but we let them stay. We put a few extra ranges on, and they'd bring their, their blankets and their picnic gear, and they, they'd kind of roll up in their blankets, and we'd let them sleep on the beach because it was so much better than forcing them back up into their, probably what you'd call slums. I mean, people would die in those places. I don't mean everybody, but all the people who were under stress, no air conditioning, Maybe nobody watching them. You know, it was, it was shelter. And those people got to come to the parks, get the experiences. It was a hot day. Don't worry. The park's not open. Everything will be fine. Rangers are here to watch you. So what's the big picture? National parks are all unique. Whether on the shores of the Mississippi or in the wilds of the Sierra Nevada, they're here to protect fragile ecosystems or to help us remember our history or yes, for our enjoyment. Should politicians leverage the system for the gain of their district? I don't know, but I do know that if we didn't care so much about names, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't work. Yes, the naming system is a mess and could be entirely overhauled. Heck, maybe they should just be all named national parks. But I beg of you, don't consider any park service designation as being more important than another. Doing so may have you missing out on the incredible vast mountains, desert, and untamed rivers flowing in our deep canyons at Dinosaur National Monument, or the craggy shores of Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. 
or the somber halls of Ellis Island, where 12 million immigrants waited for their first taste of the American dream for themselves and generations to come. Each National Park Service site has a wonderful, unique story to tell. Dig deeper than 62 passport stamps. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group, now 40,000 members strong. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America Podcast. Season two is now available wherever you listen to this one. If you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit llbean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.